It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies. Okay. Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Dead. Walker. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker and film lover's perspective. My name's Joe. And my name's Justin. In this episode, we'll be discussing Edson Oda's Nine Days. Our discussion will be spoiler heavy, and you may find this discussion more engaging if you've seen the film before listening. We just want to warn everyone now that this episode will feature discussion of suicide. I'm excited to talk about Nine Days with you. It's a film that I've been needling and poking and asking politely and not so politely for you to watch for some time now. Yeah, this is a film that you've... Now, you have not been... It's a newer film, obviously, too, but you have not been pushing me to watch this the same way you were pushing me to watch Signetiki. So I think I've certainly heard less about this film than that. And But yeah, you're right. This is something you've that you really liked, and you were telling me I need to see this. So it is good to finally catch up with this one. And I think it was a pretty solid pairing between your pick of Afterlife and Nine Days. I mean, I think it's natural to compare the two, and I think towards the end of the episode, we'll sort of unpack which of the two maybe we preferred, what each one kind of got right versus the other one. But I do think that they're a lot more dissimilar than maybe I had remembered or expected. There's kind of two points that we're going to talk about later on that I do want to kind of compare to Afterlife, just briefly, just to kind of articulate how I feel about this film versus maybe to also slightly shed a little bit more light on a point I was trying to make last episode that maybe didn't come across as well as I wanted it to. But I don't plan to spend the whole episode comparing every little bit of them. And also, I did see some some reviews, I guess, on Letterboxd that did imply that this was maybe verging on plagiarism. And I think that's ridiculous. This was actually something because I'd seen similar thoughts, similar complaints. And in all of the interviews that I, I listened with Edson Oda, he doesn't reference afterlife he doesn't touch on afterlife as an inspiration he's even got like uh, one of those like criterion top 10 and i specifically went out there kind of like hmm maybe he had selected afterlife as his choice but not to be found there either i wouldn't be surprised if he has seen it there's elements that are very similar i just don't think it's it's as big of a deal as a lot of people say it is. I'm exaggerating now. Some people say it is. I think that maybe we save this for for that, comparing the two. Because I, I do think that overall there's just a bigger discussion here. It's a similar situation to, I guess, like After Sun or, or something like that, in which it's the first feature from this director. Have you seen any of his shorts or any of his 
other work before this. No, I didn't. I remember when this came out, I had gone to see it alone. It was a very empty theater. The film really did connect with me at that point. I think there's a lot that we'll get into from a story perspective and a tone perspective that really worked for me. And after that, like I, I was kind of seeking out there's there's a lot of interviews with Edson Oda talking about this film as he kind of did the press circuit up until like you know making the decision to do this episode he had kind of fallen off my radar a little bit so I went out trying to see okay is he working what what is he doing and unfortunately I I don't see anything like lined up and his name hasn't been attached to anything since this yeah, I, I did notice that. I think it just means that we'll both be, I guess, kind of keeping an eye out for whatever he does next. I think sometimes a lot of the great filmmakers are filmmakers who don't necessarily r- rush out to make another film just to make another film, that they wait until they have a, a story that they're ready to tell and, and a story that's meaningful to them. And, and obviously also there's the possibility that he's just having trouble with financing or whatever it is we we obviously don't have a inside look into what's going on but like well i think we'll get into a little bit this film i think starts from a very personal place for him and sometimes if you know if that's the way you work it takes you a while to find a project that you're ready to dedicate all that time and effort to it's interesting that you say that and kind of bring that up and i'm going to kind of lean into like some of the production info a little bit here before i even touch on what the film's about in his interviews oda does talk about how basically he wrote the script with the idea of like okay if i only have like one opportunity to make a movie here's what i want it to be focused on and here's what i want it to be about I don't want to speak for him either. And, you know, you touched on it. We're going to get into how deeply personal elements of this film are for him. It could just be a situation where emotionally he's he's kind of said what he needed to say and, and that's the extent of it. It could just be that I put everything I had into this one and I don't have another story to tell. You know, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. If your debut feature is successful and if you told a specific story that only you felt you could tell and that's all you wanted to do that's that's okay too you are being considered for the amazing opportunity of life selected you will have the chance to be born in a fruitful environment where you can grow develop and accomplish am i dead i wouldn't say you're alive or dead are you the boss i would say a cog in the wheel (laughs) how long is this process if you make it until the end Nine days. Your senses will become unbearably sharper and stronger. (laughs) It's your new beginning. You'll never remember me or anything else that happened in this place. Ah. But you will still be you. 
every single day someone hurts someone else. Every single day someone takes someone else's life. Why are you focusing on that? Why are you not focusing on that? You've been here a few days, but you've lived every second. Are you afraid? Of what? So I guess I, I have to kind of try to explain what this movie's about, huh? Yeah, that's how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Nine Days tells the story of Will, who is sort of this watcher slash gatekeeper of this pre-existence world. With Afterlife, it focused on basically this gateway to the afterlife. This is the gateway to life and and to be born. And it follows Will after the death of one of the people that he had selected, Amanda. And Will is struggling to kind of understand what happened with Amanda, why it happened. He's basically in this place where he has a lot of grief, a lot of unknowing uncertainty. He still has a job to do where he has to basically pick a new soul to send out into the world. And it's the series of interviews and discussions with these potential souls. The two main ones are Kane, played by Bill Skarsgård, who is a a little bit more brash, a little bit more reactionary. Then another soul is Emma, played by Zassi Beats is this more, I would call her youthful, curious, somebody who's just got a much more positive and and curious nature. Supporting Will in the decision-making process is Benedict Wong's Keo, who basically acts as sort of this like shepherd, this person who is there to help guide Will, and really is a friend and somebody who is concerned and caring about Will. Ultimately, a decision is made of who is going to be born and and be sent out into the world. Maybe not the person that a traditional film would have gone with, I would say, but I think we'll kind of talk about that once we talk a little bit more about the story and the structure of it. Justin, is there anything that I, I missed in regards to the story or what's happening here? I don't know if you fully explained what Will does and how that impacts his decision-making process. You know, Will is basically overseeing the lives or he's monitoring the lives of all these people that he's selected to go out into the world to live. And he monitors them on a wall of, of TVs that is displaying, I guess, their entire life sort of a first-person perspective. We're seeing the world through those people's eyes displayed on these TVs. And Will observes and takes notes and records moments onto VHS tapes. I mean, that becomes more important because part of his process of picking somebody is the souls that are up for the possibility of being selected for life. I spend large chunks of time just watching these TVs, the, the lives that are 
unfolding in front of them and and kind of taking their own notes and uh, taking notes of what they like and what they dislike. And from the soul's perspective, everything they know about the world and about life is from what they're seeing on those TVs in front of them. And from there, they have to give answers to Will's questions. And that's going to impact who Will selects and who Will rejects, ultimately. It's sort of world building, but it's also integral to the the plot, I guess, what little plot there is in the film. The other thing that I think is worth highlighting regarding the story itself is Will is spending this time trying to understand like what happened with Amanda, the person that died. Will has lots of questions. I'm glad that you bring up like the television piece of it because ultimately there's like this powerlessness Will has. Will has this power and this ability to, you know, ultimately make this decision of who gets chosen for life. But as far as anything after that goes, he is powerless. And you see a couple of moments of that, but his big one is questioning like what happened with Amanda. Over the course of the film, it's ultimately revealed that Amanda had taken her own life, that it wasn't an accident. You kind of talk about Will shaping his decisions. And I think that what happened with Amanda, it does play a part in some of the decisions he makes and how he interacts with the interviewees. I also think it's probably worth noting that while Will is this interviewer and the one making this decision, it is revealed that he also was alive at one point. Unlike Keo, the Benedict Wong character who's there to assist, Keo was never alive. I think that those were maybe other important plot elements that kind of factor in here. I think what what makes Will an interesting character is that, like you said, there is this powerlessness, but it's not just that. It's, it's also the fact that he's forced to watch these people. It's not like he can just pick the people and then his job is done and he never has to think about how their life goes or you know whether they were quote unquote successful in life that's not the situation the situation is he has to actually watch this unfold and so he is subjected to everything that happens but also he is completely powerless at the same time he can't do anything about what is happening also what you said is that the death of amanda affects him it does affect him but i think we can also assume that he was basically this person even before Amanda died, because I think what is ultimately affecting him is his life. The experiences from his own life is affecting how he chooses what souls are going to be selected. I think he feels like he has this obligation to protect people or protect these souls from the pain that he experienced. So he's trying to eliminate the ones that he would view as sensitive or too compassionate that wouldn't be strong enough to survive the the struggles of the real world and he's rejecting them thinking that he's protecting them from future pain and he's selecting the people who are maybe a little bit more i guess what he views as sort of strong and uh capable because he thinks that those are the ones who can have a successful life in the brutal world that is waiting for them. And so I think Amanda, 
part of choosing Amanda was he thought he did pick the tough person who could live and succeed in that world. And part of the crisis that he's having throughout the film is this feeling that he was wrong and that he wasn't able to protect Amanda because he had this sort of idea of who Amanda was. And ultimately, he's now thinking that he was wrong because she took her own life, similar to him, right? So it's, I don't know if his selection process really changed the way I view it from Amanda's death, although he certainly shows his, maybe he shows his anger more, or he is a little bit colder with Emma or something because of what is going on. But I, I mean, I think ultimately his goal was the same before and after. I don't think that you're wrong regarding like, this is how maybe Will's tactics are. But I do think that maybe there's very little that happens or is revealed through like the television sets and the look at the living world. I guess from my perspective, that would support that Will is generally choosing like somebody like Kane, who is the tougher one, the the stronger one, the one who is going to not let life bring them down. At least from my perspective, I didn't see that depicted anywhere else. I think it's all about the way he reacts to the death of Amanda, because he does then talk about how he was wrong about her, implying that just because she took her own life, she is somehow not the same person that she always was, which means that he thought she was this specific thing. And then when he finds out that she would be someone who takes her own life, he now has a different opinion of who she was, which I think implies that he was trying to pick a certain type of person. But you're right, we don't see it necessarily on the television. And this is all conjecture because we're, we're kind of formulating what happened in the world of this film before this specific film. But I think even her artistic nature kind of lends itself to at least imply to me that there would be a difference between her and somebody like a Kane, where she would maybe like lean towards maybe not so much in Emma, but maybe the Mike character who is the first soul to basically be dismissed. Yeah, I mean, I'd, certainly we have this perspective that someone who's like an artist is sensitive or I guess compassionate to the feelings of others and, and the pain of others and, and that's the type of person that you know Kane is not obviously not that Kane's not critical of the horrors of the real world but he just I don't think he lets them affect him the way someone who is considered deeply compassionate would and so we kind of think of artists in that way but I don't think he rejects Mike because he's got this sort of artistic soul. I think he rejects Mike because he's unwilling to stand up for his work and is deeply insecure about his work. It was because he was like, oh, it's not good. It's not good. That's beautiful, Mike. No, it's not. That is beautiful. Why would you want to hide this? Sorry, I don't know. Don't you like it? No, I hate it. It's not the fact that he's an artist in yeah. itself, it's the fact that he was not confident in his art that made him, in his eyes, weak. I view it very much like a lot of artists maybe what they're saying is about their art, but what they're 
truly saying is, am I good enough? I think the subtext of that whole conversation is is a little bit different because I, I viewed it as Mike saying, basically apologizing for himself, apologizing for him being this way. And yeah, I, I don't think that Will dismisses him because he's an artist. I think that he dismisses him because of this sensitive nature to him that at this point, based off of what happened with Amanda, Will views as as this weakness. But I can also see it being possible that Amanda never possessed that personality. She could be creative, but she could also be what he viewed as strong. Amanda's not even really a character in this film. We don't know anything about her other than she played the violin and you know she she took her own life. So it's it's interesting to me that we're trying to pull apart how Will's acting is in response to Amanda, or this was just how Will is. Clearly, we're not going to have an answer to this, but it is just interesting that we're so focused on this character that we don't know. You're right. We're also kind of approaching it from sort of like a major plot point. It's the thing that sets the story in motion. It is the catalyst in this film. And so part of it is like, is this catalyst what motivates Will to act the way he's acting throughout the film? Or was something deep in his backstory what's motivating him to act the way he's acting? I think we disagree on this. I think you think Will becomes the person he is throughout the next hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes or whatever, because of Amanda's death. And I think he was that person before because of his own life experiences. I think both possibilities are in the film. You can draw whatever conclusion you want. To be fair, I don't know that I'm saying that the only reason Will is like this is a reactionary thing to Amanda's death. I I, I do agree with you to an extent that some of what Will is before Amanda's death is there, but I do think that things get amplified, and I think that more of the negative sides of Will become more prevalent because of Amanda's death, and there is a reactionary element to it. So kind of backing up a little bit to the making of Nine Days, this all comes through various interviews and conversations with Edson Oda. He wrote the screenplay with the expectation of maybe making it for like $100,000, writing it with limitations in mind. And I, I think that shows, I mean, really, it is just a single space film for the most part. Everything sort of takes place in this house. We've tried to approach our own films with like a minimalist style, anything regarding writing for one location. As people who've made a film and who've budgeted a film and tried to schedule a film and knowing how awful that whole experience is when you're doing everything yourself and you have no money, I get this idea of, you know, working within, you know, your resources, particularly monetary. But at the same time, if I had $20 million to make a movie, I might write a script that takes place in one location. I think creatively, they're interesting. Um, and I like the simplicity of it. I think a lot of people tend to see movies set in one location and think that in some way they're inferior and that it's only budgetary. I think there's something interesting about them. I think the mass audience hears or sees, well, this takes place in one location and they think there's little to no production value to it. I would say this film has a fair amount of production value for being one location. 
I was just thinking, like, I could picture a producer on this film as an example, just saying, like, hey, maybe we should get out of the house for one big scene. I guess the film does technically get out of the house, but I, I can picture producers giving the notes saying, like, we need to get out of this one location to kind of open the film up a bit, infuse a bit of life into this film so it doesn't feel so insular. But I, I just feel like that's just the opposite of what I personally believe. Uh, clearly, the budget ended up being well over $100,000. Nine Days was selected by the Sundance Labs for the script to be workshopped. Oda came in having worked on shorts. You, you mentioned his shorts before. He also has a background in advertising. When the film first came out, I recall there was like a lot of conversation about how Oda was basically just like discovered and here's this guy who didn't have really any like background but he himself had acknowledged his own experiences but i know there's just discussion at that time so something that i did find interesting you know this came up during a couple interviews but the film was shot over 24 days there was a two-week rehearsal period prior to the start of production but the film was shot sequentially winston duke had actually like commented how he really liked the approach of making it because we'll probably talk about it when we get into the ending of the film but you know winston duke has this big very boisterous scene at the very end of the film and his character is in a very different place i would say at that point he credits the way that the film was made basically helping his performance. I know that's not necessarily the conventional way of making a film, but you know, it is something that I don't think is necessarily harmful and especially if it helps your actors and gets a stronger, better performances out of them for it. It's something that I think you see more frequently when you talk about one location films or limited location films you have sort of the opportunity to shoot it any way you want if you're going to be in that one location or around that one location for your entire production schedule. And one of the biggest reasons for shooting things out of order is locations and company moves that go with that and, and how that affects the budget. So you just try to schedule that stuff to be the most efficient as possible. In this case, you know, you can kind of be efficient while also shooting things in sequence. I think it helps the actors. This is a situation in which an actor specifically brought it up, but I think it helps the actors most of the time, if not all the time, because they're not having to constantly be thinking about where you are in the story, what emotion they're having, what scene came before this, uh, what emotional space I need to be in, because it's like, well, you know exactly what emotional space you need to be in. It was, you're coming directly from the last thing you shot. I think it's beneficial if you can make that work. One other thing production-wise I want to bring up, and this one I, I do want to give credit to the film independent interview. It's the only time that I heard this brought up. Zussi and Bill Skarsgård, so Emma and Kane, had sort of like workshopped a little bit with Edson prior to the start of production regarding like the logistics of these souls they spent the most time kind of workshopping it because they were going to be the the two primary ones over the course of the film but it was kind of interesting they touch on sort of like the decision making about these souls just kind of exist and they have certain understandings you know they have understanding of what water is or they have you know certain understanding of speaking and, and language these actors kind of workshopped that with Edson 
to make sure that there wasn't any significant difference in regards to their understanding of this world that they existed in. And I think that that's just one of those things where a filmmaker or actors who maybe are a little less careful or not as passionate about a project that they're involved in, those are things that Eh, we're not really going to pay attention to that. We're not going to ask. We're going to kind of turn a blind eye to it. And the fact that, you know, that time and those discussions are happening, I think, speaks to the care that actually went into really building this world. want to kind of touch a little bit on the story, though, because Otis talked about the story of this film kind of being inspired by his uncle who had committed suicide and how, you know, his family had referred to him as this very sensitive person, this this sensitive soul. And the family had viewed this uncle as as a failure because he had chosen to take his own life. And Oda, in several interviews, kind of recounts family members telling him he needs to be tough and he needs to be stronger. And Oda references in in a few of these interviews how he was going through things where he actually kind of could see and relate to like the sensitivity that his uncle may have, have had and felt and how things were just so difficult at times. He didn't necessarily view it the same way that his family had. Um, and that's really like the core and the root of of what happens in this story, because both of us have talked about what happens in the film. I, I do think that this really is a film about grief and a film about this thing that's like left behind when there is somebody that you know or somebody that you feel partially responsible for that makes this decision. There's also this idea of maybe trying to understand someone who took their own life and trying to reframe the thinking about this person from being defined by that and also sort of reframing it to the fact that this was a person who have a life outside of this one decision that they made. You know, thinking about how he responds to Amanda, it's like he is viewing her as a failure for that decision that she made, similar to the way maybe certain members of his family viewed his uncle as a failure. But then it's trying to steer the conversation to everything great that Amanda was. He viewed how well she played the violin as like this beautiful thing, something that he loved. But then as soon as she takes her own life, it's that event that defines her and everything else is dropped and ignored. And then the journey that he goes on is to learn to not define, and this isn't specifically stated, obviously, but this is how I view it, is he learns to not define Amanda or even himself based on that decision. It's everything else that happened before it that you also have to find meaning in. There's questions raised throughout this film particularly with the whole process, but then also the way Will is making his selections, is like, are certain people more worthy of life than others? Or if someone does take their own life, is that life somehow a waste of life? Was that a waste of life? I think that 
the feeling from Will is that it is a waste of life and that person shouldn't have been given that opportunity because they didn't they weren't able to just succeed in the way that he feels like they should have. But I do think ultimately he comes around maybe a little bit. It's not a, for lack of a better way of saying this, and maybe you have a better way to say this, Joe, but it's not a waste of life. You know, within this world, this person still deserves the opportunity just because it doesn't play out the way I think everybody would have hoped for this person. Doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't joy the small moments that Emma points out to Will, that doesn't mean there wasn't still joy taken from those moments and and that there shouldn't be value in those moments. I do think that maybe we have a little bit of a different interpretation here as well. And I think that the way that you're reading it maybe is fed from your views and perspectives of this is how Will is versus maybe my perspective of there's some of that in Will, but it is more like reactionary because it comes up several times where I feel like Will is just like constantly looking for the reasons why. He's kind of looking for like this understanding and this explanation because he didn't see the signs that others that maybe were closer to Amanda knew or were able to see, or even that maybe nobody saw the signs and hidden from from the world. I think that the film is communicating and it's saying a lot through Will in regards to that, because I think that there is that desperation of trying to understand why. I think there is that looking for like the signs. I, I didn't see, you know, in 28 years, I, I never saw anything. I didn't see her write the note, there's all of these moments that are just this helplessness that Will feels. I'm going to articulate how I feel, and I I know it differs from how you feel, but I do feel like, I guess, in a way that is who Will is, because I think he's being defined by his his own suicide. And so whoever he picks, I believe he's picking someone who he's like, okay, this person is not like me. They're stronger than I was. They're not going to take their own life like I did. I think that is sort of dictating all of his decisions. And then when he's trying to figure out what happened with Amanda, you're right. He is looking for like the things he missed. But I think he's looking for these signs that he missed because he's like, I didn't think this is who she was. I thought she was different than me. What did I miss? But I think it comes down to like, he experienced the emotions when he was alive. And I think that he thinks that that is giving him the possibility to see it in other people. You can kind of relate this to other things, the way he kind of treats Keo like Keo is not as observant or is not as qualified because he didn't experience the emotions associated with living. And I think Will thinks like, because I experienced it, I can identify it in other people. But I think that's what he's not understanding is that you can't identify what is happening to someone internally. Will doesn't have the ability to see what someone is feeling. He only has the ability to see what they're doing in any given moment. So I think that's partly this thing where he feels like he's capable of more than he's actually capable of because of his life experience and that he somehow failed because he missed something, but he didn't miss anything. He doesn't have the ability to actually see what someone is struggling with. It's happening within somebody. It's not happening in sort of the physical world. 
I think it is somewhat commenting on whether you can really identify someone who's who's struggling with these thoughts or these feelings in the real world. I think that this is, and what's happening here is Will, on one hand, being like forced to confront his own failures, him taking what he experienced and his personal self-perceived failure and just creating this barrier and this and this view of of the world as this harsh negative thing and i think that that's really the point of emma and where there's it's not all bad it's wonder it's there is like that good out there i guess i i find it interesting that the film chooses to have will be this person that was living who took their own life and when it comes to Amanda's decision and Amanda taking her own life, if there's anyone that should be able to kind of understand Amanda's decision, it should be Will, and yet it's not. I just relate that back to how he was making decisions in the first place, even before Amanda. He was choosing someone who would, in his eyes, never do that thing. And now that she has, it's not about, oh, I understand what she was feeling. His response is, wait a minute, she's not who I thought she was. I think that this is a very traditional way of your character being a certain way at the beginning of the film, and you know, you lay the foundation of this is who they are, and then at the end of the film, they have gone through their their hero's journey, they've gone through that character arc, and now at the end, they are somebody different for their experience. It's a very traditional filmmaking idea, and we, we've we both try to like buck the trends a little bit of like traditional film, traditional filmmaking, but this is something that every screenwriting, every filmmaking course known to ever exist has kind of talked about there's a reason why i mean it it works and you want to give your audience the idea or the perspective that change is possible or change has happened or that these characters are capable of being somebody else or being a different version of themselves because as humans we we kind of strive for that and i think that this film really puts that like at the forefront for better or worse also, the idea that the experience that the viewer just went through, that journey actually meant something. I think that's important to traditional storytelling and, and maybe traditional audiences. I tend to think the character growth is a powerful storytelling device, and it can be done well, and it has been done well, but I don't think it's at all necessary, and a lot of my favorite films don't necessarily prioritize that. That doesn't make the journey any less meaningful. In terms of this film, I don't necessarily have an issue with it being included. I, I do have maybe an issue with the execution of it here. And what it comes down to for me is that the moment before the decision that Will makes, Will is almost at like his low. That's his lowest point. And then he makes a split decision. Are you referring to Will's decision to basically give Cain life? No, it's the running after Emma at the end. Okay. Basically what happens is Will has selected Cain over Emma. Emma is leaving. I would almost argue this point. I mean, it might be arguing semantics, but I feel like Emma makes the choice. 
she had her values and he could have either picked her based on that or rejected her based on that, which he did. I would like for you to tell me why the person sitting next to you doesn't deserve to be alive. Who wants to start? I don't think her leaving is saying, I don't want to be picked. Her, her leaving is saying... Her leaving is, I'm not going to play this game. And Will, at that point, needs to basically have control over the situation. So Kane is the choice. But I don't think that it's necessarily Will's choice... I don't think that Will's making the choice of Cain because of Will. I think Will's making the choice of Cain because of Emma. He's making it because of Emma in the sense that she does something he doesn't like. It's not because she's taking her name out of consideration. I think by her walking away from that, she is taking her name out of consideration. It's the same as any other character refusing to answer certain questions. Or her refusing to answer questions earlier in the film, where he even's like, I, I need you to answer this, and she refuses to answer, because she's like, I can't answer that. I don't have enough information to answer that. How is that any different from what she did at the end? There's a distinct difference in how those responses come across. It would be no different than me just saying, Justin, I disagree with you, versus a decision for me to walk away right now. I mean, ultimately, I'm communicating the same thing that I disagree, but one carries different meaning and different weight than the other. In that moment, Emma has taken the power away from Will. But that implies that if he would have just said, like, okay, what you just did, Emma, showed me that you're more qualified, and he's like, I'm choosing you that she would be against that, that she would reject that. He still has the power to choose who he's going to choose regardless. It's not like she leaves and never comes back. She still participates in the process after that. He still just believes what he believes at that point. Well, sure, and I'll agree and I'll give you that, but Emma is the one that has decided the outcome of this for all of them. While on the surface, yes, it is Will's choice, but ultimately... It was Emma's choice. Do you think that Emma even had a chance at that point in the film? I feel like Will had already made up his mind. Yeah, I actually do believe that Emma had a chance. And I think Emma had more of a chance because there were moments that we saw Will coaching her. And I do think that maybe this speaks to, again, the way that we both view this. I still think that Will had an element of care and compassion and a focus on the good. And because of that, Emma would have represented that choice versus Kane, who is not necessarily like a bad guy by all accounts, but there's moral ambiguity that surrounds him a lot more than Emma. If you're viewing it respectfully from the Justin lens of, no, this is how Will always is, yeah, you're more likely to disqualify Emma having an actual chance. And again, the way that I view the film where the way that Will is is a little bit more reactionary to the circumstance, 
is deep down Emma did have a chance because, you know, Will still had a degree of underlying hope despite Amanda's decision. Is it fair to to maybe like summarize it in that regard? Based off of our perspective, our different perspective of Will, it maybe changes what we believe would be capable in, in that decision. Yeah, that's fair. Well, I would say that, you know, obviously Emma does have an impact on Will. She does change him. In the middle of the film, I wouldn't say Emma has no chance. It's more of a, a statement that says at that point in the story, Emma had no chance. I just look at the events of that final dinner that they have together, and I just don't see, you know, at that point, Emma actually being a contender. It's just they're going through the motions at that point. It's at that moment that I would say that decision has already been made. So then immediately after that, when, you know, she gets up and walks out, I would say that that at that point, she didn't have a chance regardless of her reaction to the question. I'm going to point to something that happens in that dinner scene that I'm like, well, actually, Emma's gross out story where it kind of disarms Kane a little bit. Is that it? No. Because five minutes before he told her that, they were passionately making out. (laughs) (laughs) I think in that moment, there is kind of that question and maybe that reconsideration because she can be disarming and she can kind of show some of that personality that Will had gotten, that Will was maybe trying and taxing to him, but others maybe are finding charming. So if that doesn't exist, maybe I do lean a little bit more towards, no, Emma didn't really have a chance in that moment, but The things that are happening in that dinner sequence, I think, do lend themselves to Emma still standing a chance at that time. I'll say one thing. The way I view it is that at that point in the story, Will is still unwilling or unable to accept the the small joys, the small pleasures of life. I certainly think it's interesting that one of the things that she writes down and that um, Will discovers at the end is laughing with Cain as one of those things that you should take pleasure in and value. Just because she disarmed Cain, I don't think that that meant that, and this goes back to, I guess, the different way we view Will as a character, but I just don't think that means anything to Will in that moment because he's still not willing to accept that stuff is holding any value because he's so focused on the things that will make you strong enough to survive or persevere or whatever. I don't think that you're wrong. I do think that maybe your your view on this might just be a, a little bit more cynical. Are you putting a little bit of yourself and your views, your personal views? Not at all. Because I'm, while I'm not like someone like Emma or Ko, you know, personality-wise... The things I value are the things they value. I, I'm someone, if we want to get into what I believe, I'm someone who believes you have to take pleasure in the smallest of things, the little things, whatever brings you joy personally. Because, and this is maybe the slightly more cynical perspective than those two characters, but because there is so much 
pain in the world that you have to take the pleasure in those small things, and those are the things that ultimately make up our lives. I think Will denies that they exist up until the end of the film. Maybe you disagree with that, but that's not me seeing myself in Will, or that's not me projecting onto Will. I think that's the film telling us that he doesn't... Because even as Emma like is taking notes about everything she likes, and these are things that she likes, he's telling her that the things you like are not important. He's like, be more selective. Because to him, those things that she finds value in are insignificant to him because he rejects anything that he doesn't see as important, which are the small moments, the, the eating a peach moment. And I can, I can respect that. I guess then from your perspective, talk to me a little bit about the recreation of something that the candidates liked. Because if Will is, you know, the cynical person, and maybe that's not the right word for it, but if he is this individual that, you know, you're kind of presenting him as, from my perspective, I don't think he does that. And there's a scene between Keo and Emma where there's this discussion of, you know, Emma asks, well, do all interviewers do this? And Keo says, no, Will's the only one that does that. So I, I guess, you know, from my perspective, that shows signs that Will still respects those moments because those moments are important to others. The one thing I would question is if he respects those moments. I think he has compassion for those souls. To simplify Will's character to be cynical I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's a fair way to describe him. It, it's certainly a way to, like a shorthand for us kind of discussing this, but I don't think he doesn't value or respect or care about these souls. I think he is a compassionate person. The same way he was in life, he is now in this process. I think he's compassionate towards these souls. I think the reason he does what he does is because he has compassion for them. We take Mike as an example. Mike is the first one rejected. I don't think he's rejecting Mike because he doesn't care about Mike or he sees Mike as inferior. It's about the fact that he cares so much about Mike that by rejecting him, he thinks he's saving him from something else. He's saving him of future pain that the world would cause him because this is a person who would be, you know, potentially very sensitive to the struggles of the real world of living. And by basically denying him of that, he's also preventing him from experiencing that pain. But so he still cares about giving these souls something. He's not just sending them off with nothing because he does care about them. So this moment that they choose, you know, I don't know if Will really thinks that that moment is worthwhile, but I think that he's willing to do it for the soul because the soul thinks it's worthwhile. Obviously, I'm, I'm not trying to make the argument that he lacks compassion anything like that. I think we see that very clearly. I just think all the decisions he's making is motivated by ultimately who he is, which is this idea that he needs to save people. As an example, Mike chooses the beach moment. Do you think that moment means anything to Will? Or it's just something he's willing to do for Mike? Clearly, this is the moment that Mike chooses. So Will is respectful of that. Do I think that that's like the moment that Will would choose? No, probably not. I guess I'm conflicted by your question here because 
if we were in the same situation, I mean, clearly we would have our own choice of this is my moment and you're going to have your moment. And you might look at my moment as that's a dumb moment, Joe. Why would you choose that? That doesn't necessarily mean it's any less or more valuable. I think that the moments that we see Will at his worst are a moment with Alex, but he is really just harsh on Emma. And I think that harshness is born and and comes from the fact that, you know, maybe he sees himself and he sees some of Amanda in Emma and he wants Emma to be the choice, but he's trying to toughen her up. Now, I don't know that I actually answered your question. You did. You provided a perspective on it. I think what's interesting, and and maybe this is slightly different depending on how you view the film, but I think we can both pretty much agree on this, is whatever's motivating Will, there is the possibility that Will is depriving the world of a certain type of person. And, you know, maybe the world is being supplied with that type of person from other interviewers. There is a moment, though, where Will highlights how he sends flowers while others send pigs to eat and devour the flowers. That's a great idea. I send flowers and other people send send pigs to eat them. Yeah, but it's a hypothetical because he's not sending flowers, I don't think. But that's how we disagree potentially about the film again. And again, it's... For me, I view it as like, oh, I would like to send the flowers, but if I do send the flowers, it's going to be the pigs that are sent from everyone else that are going to devour them. So I have to reject the flowers. That's what I've been doing. But we do see a couple examples of that, whether it be through the videotape or through the television screens, because there's like the boy that's being bullied who later on like eventually fights back, and there is the handicapped man who appeared at one point to have been law enforcement of of some sort. So I, I think that there are examples of Will sending, arguably, from Will's perspective. Let me just put that caveat. From Will's perspective, he sent flowers while others sent the pigs. Isn't what makes them flowers the fact that they won't survive? I'm not quite sure how to read the high schooler who's getting bullied. But let's take the police officer as an example. He's shot in the line of duty and paralyzed, but he continues on from what we see. And again, we get very little of his actual life, but he seems to be just continuing with his life. And a counterpoint to that would be the flower would be unable to continue after such a life-changing event. Just because they're a pig doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to experience hardships during their life. But what makes them a pig in his eyes, using his metaphor, is how they respond to that. That's why he's always asking, what would you do in this situation when he's interviewing the the candidates? It's not about what happens, it's about how you respond to it that defines what type of person they are. That's how I would read it. By him choosing a certain type of person, whether that's been a long tradition or whether that's him now making the decision to choose Cain, I think you can acknowledge that he's he's potentially depriving the world of a certain type of person. You know, someone like Emma, who could make an impact on the world. She could do positive things in the world. Hypothetical, Mike could turn out to be a great artist, and he deprived the world of these works of great art because he chose someone else. And this leads into the questions that I think the film raises without ever 
really giving any answers, which I appreciate. Which is just like what makes a successful life? Is it just the good or is it, you know, a combination of good and bad? What makes life in general? Is it just good or the combination of good and bad? Or is life defined by success or failure rather than looking at the whole journey? Who deserves to live? Another interesting idea is when we look at all these candidates are watching other people in certain situations and then Will is asking them like, how would you respond or what would you do in this situation? And I think there's this interesting thing about like we as people tend to think we would do better or could do better. Someone can say like, I would do this. But then when placed in that situation, who's to say you would actually behave the way you think you would? And and this idea that when we're observing other people, we think that we are somehow superior or that we at least would behave differently and that and that somehow we know better than other people. You kind of touched on it a little bit, but I think the question that I frequently like felt and was always in the back of my mind, this film depicts these basically applicants as and I don't mean this as as a negative, but these souls are very much depicted a little one note. You know, you 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 don't have much beyond this one characteristic or this this one character trait. And and I understand why, but I think that there's this question of what could this person evolve into being or what could change about them? Will ultimately makes the decision to choose Kane. And we see Kane as this individual over the course of the entire film, and you kind of get a sense of who he would be as if he were alive. But who's to say that this interaction with Emma at the dinner table didn't change that soul to a degree? Or once he is ultimately alive, how does his experiences actually being alive change him? Additionally, and you know, this will kind of be my last point on this, additionally, Kane is depicted as less than honest. We see Kane being deceptive at at various points. And, you know, one of the first interactions we see of him is basically just tell me how to play the game and I'll play it. There is that nature to him. I would make the same, you know, raise the same questions about Emma. Emma is this childish wonder, naivety, but who's to say that alive Emma wouldn't find things to be more aligned with Kane's perspective. And we have this hope and this excitement and wonder, but over time, maybe she becomes cynical or, you know, kind of takes on more of Will's personality as she's alive. Yeah, I mean, the film does completely ignore the idea of nurture and just says it's all about who these souls are inherently and that their experiences don't affect them. But it's it's almost like, is that just Will not fully understanding something or is that truly the universe in which this film functions? It's hard to really say, but like the examples you gave, I'll just add on to them a little bit. I mean, there's that dinner where Kane brings up this horrific story. And uh, Emma is like, why are you bringing up an isolated case? I'm just curious why he decided to bring up this isolated case. Isolated case? Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Stuff like that happens all the time. All the time? Yeah. I feel like you're bringing up an exception. An exception? Are you kidding me? What world have you been watching? The same world you've been watching. I don't think you have. Every single day. 
Someone hurts someone else. Every single day, someone takes someone else's life. Every single day, someone takes their own life. Why are you focusing on that? Why are you not focusing on that? You know, she thinks this is an isolated case from her perspective now, but if she was given this opportunity, she was alive, and then she experiences this this sort of violence firsthand or someone she knows experienced this type of violence or or just hearing about it every day on the news you know obviously that would maybe change her perspective on how she looks at the world the experiences of actually feeling it and experiencing it would change the way you ultimately view the world and who you are as a person also i mean if we want to take from my perspective you take amanda as an example like who's to say amanda wasn't everything that i will thought she was but then through the process of living you know she experienced whatever she experienced that made her feel that you know taking her own life was the best option in that moment and both could be true through life experiences you you change i think it's impossible to not think about it when you're watching the film but the film itself doesn't really acknowledge that it even exists to make us just recontextualize the decisions will's making and and maybe think that he's potentially making the right decision or the wrong decision based on that information i think we both can acknowledge that we like films that don't hold your hand they don't give you all of those answers and things can be left to one's interpretation. Similarly, I think that there's a lot of things that this film just expects or trusts you to sort of accept that this is the world that we're in. All of the other stuff, I guess the logistics, don't necessarily matter. This is the one thing that I'm like, I understand I accept it. This is the one thing that I think I would like maybe some sort of hint to an answer at, and that's clearly Will was alive, he committed suicide, and now he's in this role of this interviewer who gets to choose a soul that can go on to live and have a life. The only bothersome question is, why? What about Will specifically, or is this something that every ultimately it doesn't matter and everything else i'm very accepting of i'm accepting that these souls depicted various ways come in i'm accepting of some of the technology we'll talk about that i'm sure you know uh, some of these complaints that people have about this film i'm not bothered by it's just this why will and ultimately i know and acknowledge it doesn't matter it wasn't even really a thought for me. I mean, we get very little information, and I just think it works better that way, although there are moments where we do get information. But even this idea that K.O. isn't allowed to interview people because he's never lived and, you know, will because he's lived can interview people, that's a little bit of a, a kind of a explaining why. Even that has a different purpose behind it. I think that's more about distinguishing the differences between Will and K.O. Why is K.O. the way he is? Why is Will the way he is? And that's sort of like character-based rather than story or plot-based. So, I mean, even the moments like that, which sort of seem like world-building or giving you information, is actually included for another reason. I want to kind of praise the script for how it handles these things, because you're sort of defining character and revealing how the characters are different from each other through dialogue, but all through how they respond to certain events or certain moments. It's not, this is ultimately why I have some issues with some of the moments in the film is that there are moments where it becomes a big 
monologue where a character explains a character's backstory. Like the moment where K.O. explains to Emma basically why Will is the way he is, you know, what he experienced in his life that made him how he was. Does every interviewer do that for the candidates who get eliminated? No, only him. What happened to him when he was alive? Will was special. Special how? Too good, too kind, too sensitive. But isn't that a good thing? When I first saw Will, he was still in one of those TVs. Talented, but struggled his whole life to fit into a world different from him. Did have love inside him. Maybe too much. Too much love, no one to give it to. You know, we can't do a lot for me, we really can't, but there were days I wished I was with him. Just to let him know he wasn't alone as he thought he was. And it just feels, for me, out of place because the film is so good at just revealing how these characters differ just through moments. As an example, the moment where Emma comes to the door and she's eating a peach, and just the way he's like, we can eat, but we don't get hungry. And then she asks why he doesn't eat. And he's like, I don't eat because I don't get hungry. And she just reveals like, that's not the point of eating. And just how a moment like that can reveal such a strong distinction between the characters. And then as you get more of those, it reveals pieces of who they are. Will and Emma are having the conversation about him in the play. And they're obviously talking about it like it's this other person at the time, but they both know they're talking about Will. And he, she asks, like, is that the moment that he would want to re-experience? And he says, no, because he would feel alive again. Like, I think that's just as effective at telling you that Will did not have necessarily a good life, that he wasn't happy. We don't need Ko telling Emma that he was just so sensitive and, you know, he was too sensitive or too compassionate about people that he was unhappy. It's the little moments that reveal it so well that I don't need those big monologues. So I think for the most part, the film is successful at just giving us little pieces and then they add up to something bigger. Even just the way K.O. is doing his Tarzan yell and the way Will looks at him and then the way Emma looks at him. Both characters have very different reactions to him doing this. The way that Emma volunteers to help Sand and says like, oh, I can figure it out myself, just shows like how willing she is to try new things and learn on her own and how she has this sort of zest for life that Will doesn't. When K.O. and Will are first talking about Emma, just the way they react to her differently. Will is like, she'll be the first to fall. And K.O.'s perspective is like, well, she's unique. Just through a couple lines of dialogue like that, we can understand how these characters are different from each other and why they're different from each other. Is the script successful in, in doing that stuff? And do the monologues, the expository monologues bother you as much as they bother me? 
Probably not, right? I get where you're coming from. I'm not bothered by them. I may be a little bit more forgiving of them because the film does exactly what you said and executes so much of that reactiveness within scenes that those are the moments that I also like hold on to and really gravitate towards. And I do think that those expository scenes are really just there for maybe the people that are missing the moments that we're looking at and we're focusing on. So the film reveals information two separate ways. There's the big exposition dumps, and then there's, you know, those other moments where, you know, information is revealed. Clearly, we both have a preference of one method over the other. I do think that there's a lot that the film wants you to know about. And again, I I don't love putting it this way, but it needs to sometimes take the easy route of revealing that. And and I guess the other reason why I'm, I'm maybe a little less bothered by this than you is I do view it as this is information that Emma wouldn't know, but because it's framed from Emma being the inquisitive one, she is going to ask more of those questions. She is going to try to get a little bit more. I think about somebody talking to me and asking me questions. If somebody ran into me on the street, somebody asked me about Justin, I'm, I can probably talk like 10 minutes about Justin. Yeah. Overall, I think the script is really well written. The way it can distinguish different characters' experiences. You know, you see people seeing the world differently because of their experiences, and then those experiences directly lead to the source of the conflict. There's not any, I don't think, forced conflict or forced big screenwriting events. Well, I think there's one, but... (laughs) What do you have more other than the one I'm thinking of? Well, I don't know. Is it the same one that I'm thinking of? Well, I was thinking of the end, but yeah, yeah. I want to just accept the end. I do because I I like that last sequence where he does his reenactment. Obviously, he's giving in to her, but also it's he's finally willing to embrace this moment that he's already in the script said he never wants to experience again because it'll make him feel alive again we set it up and then we're basically implying that you know at the end of the film he for a moment gets to feel alive again so i want to like it i want to just accept it for that because i like that idea i just don't like how we get there emma leaving the note written on the desk and then she had left just like little notes all over the place well Probably by the time you read this, I'll no longer exist. I'm sorry that life didn't go the way you wanted and that all the pain you went through doesn't allow you to see what I can see right now. I took the freedom to write all the beautiful moments that I experienced in this house. Look attentively and you will always find these moments. Please don't take them for granted because in my nine days here, I never did. Emma. And he reads them and he's instantly like, okay, I, I got to run after her. Whereas before reading the notes, he was like, I don't even want to say goodbye. It's a big change very quickly based off of one little experience from my perspective. Yeah, I, it is probably the most movie moment uh, as I was watching this last night. I'm like, and this is going to be the moment that Justin hates. 
I'm so predictable, I guess. I know Justin's taste, and I knew that he would feel like maybe that moment isn't completely earned. And I don't think you're wrong for that. I, I think, again, I'm a little bit more forgiving of it because I think it comes down to how we view Will. I can easily explain it away in my mind that he is getting back to pre-Amanda death Will. I know we keep talking about this to death, but I just want to say I just want to say something real quick. I don't necessarily think that we disagree that much on Will because I'm not trying to make the argument that these qualities don't exist in Will. I'm trying to make the argument that he tries to bury them to protect these other souls. That's where we disagree, but I still agree that he has this compassion in him. He still has capacity for life and, and joy, but it's just sort of buried at this point. And I get that, and I, re I respect that, and I, I, I think what's happening right now is reactive, and it's hitting close to home because of his own decisions. Clearly, we don't know what happens after the movie ends, but and this is conjecture, but I think that he will have regret for the Kane decision. Yeah, I think so too. By the end of the film, I agree with that. Justin, I gotta ask because, you know, one of the complaints that I had seen was the use of analog devices. One thing I do think is interesting and is an effective motif is how TVs aren't just a way to view the life, but they represent the life itself in a way. The reason I say this is it's like a wall of TVs. Each TV represents one person's life, all of these lives happening at one time, but disconnected, not intertwining in any way. The screens go black when they go to sleep. The TV turns off completely when someone dies. The TV comes back on with the color bars, when it's ready for a new soul to take its place. And so it's not just a window into the life. It, it in a way, represents life itself, which is, I think, is an interesting way to approach it because it could have easily been just, this is how he watches these people's lives and that's the end of it. But there's little touches here and there where it, it becomes a, just a little bit more interesting, I think. And it happens with Amanda. It happens with, and I'm blanking on the character, but the disabled man... Across both of them, there's shots where there's like the reflections of those individuals, basically just like the way that's shot and the way that it's visualized, where everything is like that first person, and all we get are those like reflections or glimpses of of themselves, and you know, in a window or looking at themselves in a mirror. That's one of those things where you could easily make the decision to not shoot that in kind of like that first person method or you know, Will is just kind of this all-seeing watcher. I, I think that this was a great use of it. Here's the thing. We live in a period now where everything is so uncinematic. Computer screens, although you can make a whole movie about a computer screen now, but computer screens, cell phones, uh, like flat screen TVs, like all this stuff is just so lifeless and textureless and uncinematic. What's wrong with just choosing a format that just adds a little bit of texture and physicality? You know, we're talking about him ejecting a VHS tape and hitting record on a VHS tape. That's better than him dragging a file onto a USB drive, right? I mean, it's just, there's obviously filmmaking reasons behind it. What if I told you that's not even the thing that bothers me the most? <laughs> Okay, <laughs> what bothers you the most? It's honestly this whole like 
questioning why do some souls look old? Why do they look like they're 50? I do believe that there is such a thing as somebody having an old soul. I feel like that's honestly depicted because Anne, that's really the one that they're kind of referencing or Alex maybe because Alex does look a little bit older. Their character traits and the way that they're played, I think communicate something in addition to the physical appearance. Yeah, just like you said, we have expressions like old soul, but we also have expressions like young at heart or childlike as a way of describing people. When casting is done really well, we always talk about how the casting of that actor really added something to the role because of some physical characteristic of the actor or maybe some some baggage that comes with the actor, you know, whether it's their career trajectory or something that happened in their personal life. And then we sort of think about those things while watching the movie. A lot of the time, it's something physical. They fit the role physically. We talk about that as a positive thing. Why can't you just think about the casting of these actors as representing who these souls are and how casting this let's say 50-year-old actor is revealing something about who that newly born soul is or who they would become just to dismiss it as if like this makes no sense is a little irritating because obviously there's ways to interpret it and by you choosing not to interpret it anyway doesn't make it mean nothing the moments where they're trying to recreate these life experiences for the rejected souls is probably my favorite sequences in the film. They're inventful in kind of the way they unfold. I think they're very moving. But then just on a storytelling level, this is where I'm going to reference Afterlife just because I feel like I have to just to make my point. If people listen to our Afterlife episode, I did discuss how I felt like the two ideas, this idea of someone picking a memory and then them recreating the memory these two ideas were sort of fundamentally disconnected from each other, and I didn't necessarily feel like they, they fit together or that the filmmaking recreation added anything to the story. And I think here it does add something to the story, and I think the reason why is because it's not required. It's not about plot, it's about character. It's not required part of the film. It just reveals what type of person Will is that he chooses to do this for those souls. It's not a plot point, it is strictly a consolation prize and parting gift to these people. And then on another level, why I think it's really interesting is that because it's meant to be this really kind of kind, compassionate moment from Will to this other soul, and while it is, it is also kind of cruel in a way, because it's like you're dangling this in front of their face saying like, this is what you could have experienced and this is what you were so close to experiencing, but now you never will experience it. It almost makes it kind of worse in a way. And, and obviously that's not Will's intention, but those moments where Mike at the beach and we're hearing the audio that is coming from the headphones, we, we hear the waves, we hear the birds, maybe other people sort of talking at the beach. And we're hearing that audio, and then it just cuts out. Ah! Ah! And then we're left with whatever audio is in the, 
the room in which they're recreating this. So it's, it goes from the waves and the, and the wind and the birds chirping, and then it's like silent. And then just a little bit of the water moving as Will is brushing the water at his feet. For a moment you have this and then it's yanked away from you. And then the same thing with Maria where she's biking. This time it's done visually. They just sort of roll that projector screen away and she's just left silhouetted by that projector light. Another moment where she was experiencing this moment, it was perfectly recreated it for her and then it's just ripped away. Apart from being very moving in the moment, I think this idea that you could almost view it as a little bit hurtful in a way. Will's intentions are good in this moment, but it, it almost is like kind of a, a twisting of the knife a little bit. Beautiful, honestly, beautiful filmmaking in those sequences, I think. Just with the sound design, with the way they recreated them, with Emma watching, I thought that was all really good. Biggest thing for me was these actually felt, I hate to put it this way, you know, kind of going off of something that you said, and I'm going to probably take it a little too far here, but in a weird way to me, the recreation of the memories in Afterlife, I liked that. I liked that touch. Oddly, I found this, those moments that Will was trying to create, I found it to just be more meaningful. We have context for what it means. We see everything leading up to it. We see how these two characters are sort of taken with certain aspects of life and how sort of excited they are about them and how sort of devastated they are when they're rejected versus afterlife. We don't see these people's lives. We don't see, you know, everything leading to these moments that they select. Now, we do get the interviews, and I liked the interviews in Afterlife, but it's not enough to, I don't think, hit emotionally. With Nine Days, it, it does hit emotionally because you see the characters experiencing everything that leads to that moment. So it does mean more, and I think it does hit more emotionally. We've talked about the ending and the piece that doesn't work for you, and that's the very movie moment and it's how we got there yes i'm sorry and that's what i mean by that like very movie moment where it's like oh, okay will finds the letter will sees like all of the spots that emma had written what about winston duke's performance there at the end what about the recreation of of that monologue I liked that. I think it's one of those moments where they execute everything really well. They do talk about it was shot practically. It was not on a sound stage or anything like that. I think that the way that the camera moves, it's really on will for the majority of it. But when we get Emma, there's that kind of like joy. And this is a moment that just works so, so well. And maybe that's why I'm also a little like that Hollywood moment. I'm like, I don't even care. I'm just glad we're here. I don't disagree with anything you've said about the actual moment. In that moment, it's about these two characters and them finding joy with each other. And the way we can hear, even when we don't see Emma, the way we can hear her off screen laughing or off screen joining in with like his yelling and stuff. Yeah, it's a great moment. It's perfectly executed. And that's why I say like, I want to just accept how we got there. I want to just like it, but it just doesn't quite work 
And it's a thing where we talk about this a lot, how we start films, how we end films, first impressions and last impressions. We look at this film and we and we analyze how I feel at the end of the film when that screen cuts to black. It just lingers on the black and then the, the title pops up just a little later than you'd ever expect. When that happens, I'm walking away from this film feeling good. Like it's a good last moment. That last scene worked perfectly. The abrupt cut to black, the linger on the black, and then the title coming up just works perfectly. Just leaves me feeling everything the filmmaker wanted me to feel. So in that way, it works. It sticks the landing, as some people might say. I mean, in that way, maybe my criticism is invalid. You know, it doesn't really matter because the scene itself works. I know that I've mentioned this a a couple times. One of the things that I think that the film gets right is just like that depiction of like stages of grief. You know, while I haven't been in a situation like Will's where it's somebody that I know or I'm familiar with who has committed suicide, it is one of those things that is... I imagine is incredibly hard and difficult and challenging for people. Having dealt with deaths within my own life, regardless of you knew that it was coming or you didn't, I think that there's like this natural question of why and the various stages of grief. And I I think that the film does a good job of depicting that through Will having those various stages. There's so many moments where Will is just searching for answers. You know, he's pouring over videotapes. He's trying to find like some sort of clue. He makes statements to Keo and the other interviewer. I didn't see any signs. You know, Winston Duke does a tremendous job of just portraying this like what I imagine people are in that situation experience like those questions and like looking for those answers and Will kind of narrows in on those moments where like Amanda was really happy, you know, look at how successful she is. And I think that the film has a lot to say, is really trying to shine a light on this is what we see and this is what an individual may may notice or, you know, look at how successful or or accomplished this individual is. But underneath all of that and the things that aren't overt, aren't obvious, that you're not necessarily privy to is is those struggles. And Edson Oda talked about where this film came from and where this idea came from. And I, I think that he really does do a good job of communicating this and, and making this film about what he intended it to be. If you look at any number of films that we've covered here or that we've just watch and discuss personally between us. I think there's a lot of films that have this intention of, oh, this is what it wants to be about, but it never does those things. It never gets there. And and Nine Days absolutely does. It's hard to make a film that really is accomplishing what you want to accomplish, especially when you're trying to capture certain emotions. You know, it's one thing to tell a story. But when you're trying to capture certain emotions and you're hoping that that will resonate with a viewer, that's very hard to do. And when it does happen, I think it does take talent, but I also think there's a bit of, uh, I don't know, I'll call it magic that occurs. Like you said, we've talked about films that I don't think have accomplished what they set out to do. I think we both know, and we've been critical of films, obviously, on here. Maybe I've been more critical than you sometimes. As critical as I am, 
I'm not trying to act like the film failed to do something that was easy. It's never easy. So the fact that it works so well in nine days for a filmmaker who is relatively inexperienced, it is truly exceptional and magical. You had referenced, you know, the death of Amanda and how that affects Will and Will going on this journey to kind of figure out what happened and and why it happened. I would like to talk about the actual moment in which we see the crash that kills Amanda briefly on a story level and then on the technical level. On the story level, I think what is interesting is I think it effectively gets us to care about a character that we really don't know anything about. Let me rephrase that. It gets us to care about a character's death. And I had mentioned in our Prince of Darkness episode that, and we were talking about how the death at the end of that film, the sacrifice at the end of that film really didn't mean much to us. And that there's two ways to kind of make a character's death impactful for the audience. The first way is obviously we know that character, we care about that character, we're invested in the outcome of that character. And then the second way is we see how the death of that character affects other characters in the film. This film does the latter really well. It's set up slowly. Amanda is the first character introduced in the film. In a way, she's actually introduced before Will is even. You know, we start on the videotapes of Amanda and we see sort of a faceless man taking notes, but we kind of get Amanda before we even get Will. And then we slowly introduce little elements about Amanda. We see how much Will enjoys watching her play the violin and how much that means to him. And then we introduce a new character specifically to reference the concerto that she's about to play. Keo could have been introduced at a different point in the film, but they choose to introduce him at this moment. And he shows up at the door. Keo's like, I brought you groceries. And Will's like, are you here for groceries or to see the concerto? And he says both. By introducing a whole new character, who is there to see her play there because he cares about her. He shows up early, essentially. And then we see Will getting dressed up and we see how much this event means to both of those characters. That when that event never happens and when she ultimately dies, we're invested in the outcome because of how it affects those two characters. And and I think we'll get into the filmmaking behind it, which really makes that work. But I thought... This was a really well-executed moment in which Amanda really doesn't mean anything to us. And you even mentioned earlier that we, we've been discussing her quite a bit, even though she's not even really a character in the film. But yet that moment, at least for me, I felt that moment for Will. I felt the impact of this moment on Will. And I think it's all of these little moments that kind of lead up to that that make that work. And then it's just enhanced by the filmmaking. Do you have anything to add about that before we talk about the filmmaking? I know you're approaching it from the aspect of getting us to focus on Amanda and how it really impacts Will and Keo. I think it's great world building, too, as far as not just Amanda, but like all of these lives existing here and the importance that... Will primarily, but Will and Keo place on, I, I'm going to say primarily on Amanda, but it's not just Amanda because it's referenced with the woman who's going to get married and she's trying on her wedding dress. And there is this nature of like care amongst these individuals. 
and how invested they are in the events in their lives. Should we talk about the filmmaking of it? Yeah, I mean, I want to focus a lot on the editing. I kind of want to talk a little bit about the the cinematography. All of this is naturally going to come together because there's a lot of things that the editing is helping enhance like visually and the way that the film kind of unfolds from a visual language standpoint. For me, one of the things that's really makes this movie a success is the way that it's shot, there is a focus on motivated movements. I remember this movie having more movement when I had seen it in theaters. Upon revisiting it, I was maybe a little surprised with how many like static shots there were. There's a lot of shots where it's just a single of Winston Duke or these characters, and you're just given that time to to kind of sit and breathe. Another thing that I really like appreciated about it, and we've talked about this with other films, how I'm going to kind of touch on editing a little bit here. With a lot of modern films, the way that you would shoot a conversation is you know, right now I'm talking. So there would be like that single or, you know, some sort of close up on on me as as I'm saying this. And the camera would just continue to be on me as I'm talking. And then we would cut to, you know, the same or a similar shot of Justin as he would respond to me. But one of the things that stood out to me with with nine days is, while yes, there is like the camera holds on me as I'm saying something, it also continues to hold as there is a response coming at me. You know, it's not just a dialogue. It is communicating like my reaction and my response to Justin or vice versa. It doesn't rely on that traditional filmmaking trope. Yes, you're getting the dialogue, but what we're truly getting is emotions and reactions and responses because the camera isn't afraid to not show the speaker. The camera is willing to just show, here's here's how somebody's reacting to what's being said. It is so much about how what the person is saying is affecting that person who's listening. So we see the person listening. I do think there's many moments in which the scene that plays out is not necessarily about the dialogue. It's about how characters are reacting to what is being communicated to them specifically, which directly ties back to what I was saying earlier of character being revealed through just reactions or responses to information that is delivered to them. I think when you see that, it becomes very clear that you have a director and an editor also communicating something with the editing. Because when someone does that, it becomes clear that these choices are being made for a specific reason because it's not necessarily traditional. Directly related to the scene in which Amanda crashes, here's a great example of editing that is conveying the emotion. It's using techniques that I've talked about during other discussions, and it's the pace of an edit changing as something in the film changes or something in the story changes. What happens in the film Will and Keo are watching this TV in which Amanda is driving very fast. He asks Will what time the concerto is and then asks why is she driving so fast then. And what we get is a two shot of the two of them watching the TV. I'm going to give times here just to demonstrate what I'm trying to communicate. So please stick with me here. Uh, two shot. It's 
one second, 19 frames. Then we have over the shoulder of the TV. In this case, it's sort of like an over the hip. It's shooting between them at their hip at the TV that's lower than they are. One second, 14 frames. Then we have a close-up of Will, one second, eight frames. Back to the over the shoulder of the TV as she's about to crash is 19 frames. As you see this happening, and as their confusion, I guess, transitions into concern, and then that concern transitions into fear, and then ultimately she crashes, the pace of the cutting gets quicker and quicker. Each shot gets slightly shorter, and it creates this anticipation, but also this sort of energy leading up to the big moment in which she crashes, and then it slows down immediately. The moment of change, which is post-crash, after she crashes, you introduce a change to your editing rhythm. And now we have a two-shot in which they're reacting to her crash. Three seconds. Then we have close-up of the TV. The TV turns off. That's two seconds and 13 frames. And then we have Will close-up, which is five seconds and 20 frames. So not only do we now, after this big moment, do we slow the pace down dramatically, but then we get this final reaction of Will, this close-up, which is you know twice as long as any shot that we've experienced in this sequence yet. And we just hold on his close-up. And I think even if you're not a crazy person like me and you're not counting the frames, I think you can just subconsciously feel that the shot is longer than anything you've seen before. And that just holding on his face with the added performance on top of that completely sells how devastated he is and also an element of shock that he's feeling in that moment. From my perspective, this is expert film editing. You have a pace changing to match the events and the emotions of the scene. You have a dramatic change after something in the story changes, and then you can hold and really sort of stretch out a moment to really sell that emotion. So what's happening in the story is controlling the rhythm, and then the rhythm is ultimately what affects how the audience feels about that moment. I just don't think I see a lot of that in modern filmmaking, especially, because everything's just about cutting to keep up a consistent pace, to keep things moving, to keep things sort of energetic and, and not boring. But this is a situation in which it's cut this way for character, cut this way for story. And I think it works really well. You know, I've mentioned this on other episodes. You kind of touched on the moment here where there's like that close-up on Will. And it's really about making your close-ups count. I don't feel like there's a ton of close-ups. I, I think there's a lot of singles in Nine Days. But I do feel like the close-ups that we get, especially this one that's kind of happening in this sequence that you're talking about, is one of those like meaningful ones where we're right in Will's space and, and emotions. Something I actually kind of wanted to touch on is this scene that follows, and it's Keo and Will, um, and it's it's the very next scene after the car crash. Will and Keo are basically like in this like file cabinet room, and it's it's this wide shot, 
And on the right side of the frame, you have Will. And then on the left side, you have Keo. And there's all of this like negative space between there. And it really is just this wide two shot. On Will's side, it's just complete darkness. You have a little bit of like spill just to kind of like distinguish him from the background and not completely fall into darkness. And then uh, Keo has a, a light on him and it's kind of this golden light kind of like coming from this desk lamp and right above there is like the the windows of the room and you know it's kind of like spill from like simulated moonlight and that's the extent of it and the reason why i bring this up is it's just that continuation of will's feelings and emotions and what this scene is communicating with the way that this is lit and the blocking of it where there's so much space between them it's communicating to you everything that you really need to know about where they are i think it also communicates something a little bit about keo too with the fact that there's the decision made to to put a light on him you know he is going to kind of be this beacon and this light for will amongst others as as the film is progressing the thing you didn't say specifically though when you were talking about the lamp that keo is by is that although yes there's like an exposure difference one is in light one is you know sort of in darkness but also the color temperature specifically will is it's a little bit more blue because he's in the shadows and he's getting just the ambient light from the window and uh keo's being lit that very warm yellow light so the color temperature and the luminance it's a great shot and great shot because it communicates so much visually yes there's lighting for the practicality of here's a windows but very often or like when it really counts i think the focus shifts from like the practicality of the lighting to what is the emotion that our lighting is trying to communicate and convey you have this shot behind Will. Will is kind of silhouetted and he is staring at the projection of Amanda's memories. He's standing there observing the memories, watching, and from behind reacting to them. But again, he's completely like silhouetted. They cut to a single on him. You know, you can see his reaction. And there's the multicolored projection light that's behind Will. The lighting decision being made there is strictly Will's emotion and, and where he is. Now, if we fast forward, we kind of have a another shot of Will staring at the same screen. This is when the other interviewer has brought the tape to Will with Keo, and the lighting is completely changed at this point. Now Will is still in, in darkness as he's approaching the screen and, and closer to it, but we get more definition and he's a little bit more distinguished in this shot and you can kind of see where he's at in the story and his journey he is starting to kind of like come out of that darkness a, a little bit more because he's starting to to see the answers and again i i kind of bring this up because you have two very similar scenes as far as location blocking the logistical elements that are there but the thing that's changed is that character. So the lighting decisions here 
don't equate to the same lighting decisions later. The last thing I really want to touch on, like from a visual standpoint and a, and a visual language, there is that moment where Amanda in the TV is up and, and practicing and, and all the rest of the TV banks are black. And there is something just like really bittersweet and very moving to me that of all of the souls that Will has passed on, they're all in the same state. They're all sleeping while Amanda is still, you know, working on her art. And I think it was a really good, intimate moment between Will and Amanda in that moment, because at that point in time, it is just the two of them. Even though they're not together, even though Will is just this observer, there is just this moment where it is like they are the only two that exist. I mean, you described it as she was working on her art. It's possible there were other things going on that were preventing her from sleeping. Yes. But what's also interesting is that this reading requires a lot of speculation, but I'm going to do it anyway. You could imagine, obviously, we know now that Amanda takes her own life. There's the possibility that Amanda felt very alone in her real life, that she was a very lonely person. And yet, there's this idea that there's like somebody always with her, always watching her, and she's not really alone, but just unfortunately, she doesn't know it, or she can't feel it or experience it. Yes. I think we could handpick many moments like this that can be kind of interpreted many ways or kind of add just more layers to the film. I think it is a film with many layers, and I think the deeper you go in, the, the more you can get out of it. Absolutely agree, and I, I think that you touched on really, I think, what is happening there. One of the things that I really liked about the very early stages of this film that's kind of happening in the first act is the way that the film is kind of revealing information about this process. And it's maybe a little monotonous because it's Will sort of explaining the world and what's about to happen here. The film is like cross-cutting between the various applicants. You know, they're basically all getting the same piece of information, but we are kind of given just like different chunks of it to different people. By doing that, you know, clearly we're revealing information, but we're also slightly introducing those characters. This is the other thing that I did want to kind of at least acknowledge Afterlife. This is something that is is done in Afterlife as well to establish the world and to establish the characters. I think it's taken to the next level in this film, taking it a little bit further in Nine Days. Yeah, like you said, it's creating essentially a montage out of this cross-cutting that's keeping this necessary exposition lively and dynamic and interesting and moving each character is getting a piece of information but we as the audience are getting the whole picture i think it's really effective at also you know revealing that each one of these new souls is getting the same experience also revealing you know in terms of viewing this from will's perspective it's sort of repetitive for will it reveals how repetitive Will's work really is. It's just sort of the same with every new soul. And even the death of Amanda really affected him. But even after someone dies, it's like this process still goes on. You know, life still goes on. He still has to pick someone to replace 
her, essentially, and there's sort of this secular nature to this whole experience. And then similar to afterlife, it is revealing. It's just very matter of fact. It's just this is something that happens in afterlife. It was like this business. There's employees here. It's like, I guess, Will is the only employee that we see, but it's just a process that is necessary for life as we know it to continue he's sort of just stuck in this process and it's very repetitive for him. I think it's a lot of things being established all at once here. I think, and it continues this throughout. I mean, like, obviously when we're first introducing the concept, it happens, but even later on in the film, they continue to do this with all of the characters. I think they're trying to emphasize that all of these characters are kind of having this shared experience. The one I think of is all of the new souls are picking these moments that they like and they're writing down the moments they like and then will tells them that he's going to now ask them to pick moments that they don't like and then how this is depicted is will is talking to kane and he says i'm changing the assignment and then we cut to will talking to maria and he says uh, pick something you don't like and then we cut to will talking to alexander and he says any questions so each character is getting like a piece of the conversation, but then we as the audience kind of experiencing the whole conversation as, as one experience. So it does this, you know, not just in the beginning, but, you know, kind of throughout to show each character kind of experiencing the same events. Kind of going off of this, there's also, there is a elliptical cutting happening in the film as well between actions within a scene itself. I think... The example that I think comes to me first is when we're first introducing these new souls and we have Anne approaching the house and she's the first person we see the exterior of the house and she's approaching. You know, we have a shot of her walking to the house. Then we have a shot of her standing at the door of the house. From interior of the house, we see Will poke his head into the hallway and we see that he sees Anne standing outside. And then we cut to the door opening and a close-up of Anne. And then we cut to Anne sitting and Will hands her the cup of tea. And then we cut to like a profile two shot in which Will is already sitting and they have a conversation. You know, Will's like, can I take a picture of you? And we cut to a shot of Anne sort of jumping at the camera flash. We don't see Anne get to the house. We don't see Will walk to the door and open the door. We just see the opening of the door. We don't see them walking to his office and sitting down. We don't see Will sitting down. We don't see Will grabbing the camera and pointing the camera at Anne. We just see the moments that they think are important and cut out sort of the moments in between. It kind of creates a bit of like a montage feel throughout the entire film in a way. I think it's a film about time not explicitly, but in a way it is. We're told that the souls have nine days. There is a clock counting down. Then when it comes to life, we are reminded that we have a very limited time that we have to live. And so without ever actually mentioning it, I think it's always reminding us that this is essentially a film about time and time passing. And I think this cutting pattern is like a different representation of time and making us think about time and potentially even thinking about how quickly time is passing. These moments that are actually important are sort of, in an instant, they're gone. In this case, they're not even shown. But just how quickly 
you know, time can just kind of fly by. It just feels right to me. You know, I mean, we can intellectualize it and we can analyze what it means, but it just it just feels right when I'm watching it. Reflecting and thinking back on the first time I had seen this film, and even upon this rewatch, this film's about a lot of things, I would say. I've highlighted one element as being, you know, Amanda's suicide and kind of the fallout and repercussions of that. But I, I think that the film is also communicating a lot of other things. You know, you talked about time passage. I think that there is a question of what makes a soul. Are people inherently good or not? There are things that the film just brings up and makes reference to, but it has no interest in addressing or answering. And I think that's okay. I think that it trusts that the audience is going to put the pieces together for themselves and come to their own conclusions. And that's refreshing to see. I, I don't think, you know, maybe we've seen that on the films we've discussed on this podcast overall to varying degrees. I'm thinking of just how many movies are really doing this. I would just make the argument not enough. I, I think there is a, a tendency for films to over-explain. It's refreshing, at least for me, to, to see a film trying to trust the audience. So it wasn't boring. Absolutely not. I cried. Did, wait, did you really cry? Yeah. I was not expecting that reaction. It was both of the recreations, but the recreations like really affected me. And I think it was because of a combination of things. I mean, it was the filmmaking, the score, the performances, but it was also just everything leading up to it, where I wanted the best for these characters, and I wanted them to be able to experience everything they wanted to experience in, in a way they did, but also weren't, you know? So, correct me if I'm wrong, we get technically three recreations, the two propers and then Wills. Yeah. And I talked about getting emotional during the first two. I liked Will's two, or Emma, Will yeah. combination. I liked that one too. It's just... I, I think that maybe it's held back because of, for you at least, based off of what happened before. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's that's a good question. If it really is that or if it's other things. Or has Will not earned it? Well, I don't think that's... F well, I guess that is kind of my complaint is that he... Not that he doesn't, but how quickly he changes isn't earned. I felt bad when Alex makes the decision he does and how he would rather go and... But honestly, it makes all the sense to have Mike, Maria, and then Wills being the final. I think you also need someone to react the way that Alex acted. Yes. And I think Alex got his sweet moment. He got the beer with Will, which I thought was a nice moment. In a way, he got his moment, but it wasn't really. But I think it was important you have at least one character react the way he did, because I think that's a representation of a type of person and him trying to eliminate certain types of people.
This is something that we've talked about briefly already, but I think it's worth pointing out how effective the opening of the film is at establishing so much and building so much in terms of the situation in the world it takes place and I guess establishing little pieces that will come back later and mean something. I, the film starts on a TV, full screen. We see the color bars and then we are introduced into a series of clips of this person's life and we know it's Amanda because we have the first shot is her parents looking over her in her crib and they call her Amanda. Immediately we're kind of starting with the beginning of Amanda, Amanda's life, you know, because the color bars represent the beginning of life and then we have Amanda as a baby and as like a child and then we begin cross-cutting that with her playing the, the violin. So we are establishing Amanda right away starting with essentially her birth and, and kind of moving forward to cover her entire life. But we get, you know, flashes of Amanda's life and then just close-ups of Will taking notes or extreme close-ups of his hand writing the notes. And we don't even know who Will is at this point. And then a couple minutes in, we, we start to introduce shots in which we see the TVs visible. You know, we start with these tapes full screen, and now we introduce the fact that these are tapes being viewed on TVs by someone. And then we're sort of cross-cutting these milestones of Amanda with Amanda playing the violin. So, you know, we're establishing that the violin is an important part of her life. You know, then we have a wider shot of a TV center frame, and then these two TVs on the left and the right sort of fade in. So we're now establishing that there are many TVs. And then we pull back to reveal Will, who's monitoring all of these TVs. And then we have, you know, like a montage of other people, close-ups of other TVs, close-ups of tapes full screen, but then tapes on the TVs, then, you know, notes being taken, um, a series of shots of VHS tapes being ejected, the tapes being put into files. Slowly, we're establishing bits of information. We're establishing Amanda. Then we're establishing someone watching tapes. Then we're establishing someone watching many tapes, many lives happening all at once. Then we're establishing Will himself watching the tapes and taking notes. Then we're establishing his work, what he does. He records what's happening by taking notes, but he's also recording onto VHS tapes. He's filing all of this information. This is part of his process. So we're just slowly revealing more and more information in this essentially montage and it, so it builds the world out it establishes our characters and i think it's all done very efficiently i think it's a good way of doing it visually because there is a kind of a lot to establish i mean it is essentially a very high concept idea and with that comes certain expository information that needs to be conveyed to the audience and i think this film sets up the situation and the world all in you know like three minutes very effectively visually and it's also introducing characters at the same time it's worth noting and worth studying to see how that stuff is accomplished visually you know i i was always told like 10 minutes or like 10 pages that's kind of like when you're going to either get people or people are going to pass on the project to kind of your point here we are really just left in this world of will basically until nine minutes and 45 seconds or so when keo finally arrives the other thing is there's no dialogue, like traditional dialogue. We hear stuff on tapes. Something that bothers me in films is when 
I acknowledge people talk to themselves in real life, but when people talk to themselves in movies, it just feels like a screenwriter trying to fill silence or a filmmaker trying to fill silence. Yes. And doesn't feel real or natural. Here's an example of where a character is alone for the first 10 minutes of the film, essentially, but there's no need for him to talk to himself or anything like that. So Right. And you establish, okay, I don't know or fully understand what all of this is, but I understand like it is this person's job and duty to to watch what is happening here. I, I think you can glean a lot of your own conclusions about what's happening there and the film will help guide you in what's coming up. I actually probably put it up there with the opening of After Sun where that one was also, you know, relatively quiet. There's so much happening, but it kind of feels like nothing's happening. I think that's why it works for me. Do you have any supplemental material you want to highlight? I'll just mention real quick. So this film was selected for the Dolby Institute Fellowship. So there was a lot of stuff on the Dolby YouTube channel. I will let you talk about that if you want to talk about that, Joe. But I just want to highlight the actual podcast. Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast, which is a conversation with just Max Smith and Brandon Proctor, sound designer and mixer. And then there's another podcast called uh, Tone Benders that has an interview with Max Smith and Brandon Proctor. I'm highlighting these because I do think the sound design is really great in this film. So if you're interested in sound design in films, these are two resources for this film. Links will be in the description if anyone's interested. I think that there was a good interview through Film Independent. It's got the entire cast and crew in there. Uh, Some people are highlighted a little bit more than others. Beyond that, there's a number of interviews with Edson Oda, and he's pretty forthright with discussing the film and i think that's always kind of refreshing pretty open about where the idea came from so i i I think pretty much anywhere that you can find an edson oda interview if you're interested in filmmaking it's probably a good listen the decision was made that we were going to kind of do these two films together I think that there are a number of similarities between Afterlife and Nine Days. I've seen the letterbox comments about how Coriata should just like be angry about this film. And do, do you ever think about Justin how we have a world of knowledge at our fingertips, and all we use it for is to like you know share our opinions and like bitch about movies? And I think about it all the time. <laughs> yeah, me too. And yet I'd that was that was something else I didn't talk about. I thought Kyoto's experience of watching someone live a life but never himself living life. I thought was interesting given the fact that we as a society spend so much time watching other people on social media or watching TV or movies or, you know, reality television or whatever it is, but we ourselves are You know, social media is the most extreme example because we're watching other people live their lives while we sit on our phones or something. And and we do nothing with our lives. Yeah. Obviously, that's not really what's happening with Keo, but I thought it was an interesting kind of reminder of that. Honestly, that that is something really interesting that the film doesn't really do much with, but also very like relevant there's so much going on in this film and i know i've said this before but like even just now like you bringing that up i'm like oh yeah i didn't even like really acknowledge or make eye contact with that it's just something else now to kind of think about 
Yeah. I guess I'll, I'll kind of start with you, Justin. Clearly, there's comparisons to be made here, but I'm going to ask the, the bigger question first. Are these really the same film or relatively the same film as maybe some critiques and criticisms like to suggest? No, I think good films, and I think both films are good, are not about the events that happen in the films. They're not about the, um, in this case, you know, like the set dressing for lack of a better word, you know, the the use of TVs, the use of interviews, the use of recreations or whatever. It's not about that stuff. It's about what the film is saying, you know, with those techniques or with those story beats, what it's saying thematically, what it's encouraging the audience to think about, what conversation it's encouraging people to have. That is what I think films are about. And if you view it through that lens, these films are completely different. There's similar elements. Those elements aren't what defines the movie. It's what the movie is trying to communicate that defines the movie. And they're about completely different things. What do you think? Are they the same film? Is there a plagiarism case to be had? <laughs> no, I don't think that there's a plagiarism case to be had. I find it I find it interesting, and I'm going to take less of a highbrow approach than you, I think, when I voice my opinion on this. I find it interesting that the criticism or critique of this film is this comparison to Afterlife and Coriata. And I, and I say this because we consume so much media that is just derivative of something else. You look at, I know this is low-hanging fruit, but you look at the Marvel machine where basically it's a different coat of paint, but all the story beats are the same. You basically just swap one character for another and, and it all looks the same. Here people are accusing Edson Oda and Nine Days of ripping off, plagiarizing, whatever you want to call it, afterlife. When, yes, there are framing devices that are the same or very similar. However, you have that through the course of all of film history. There have been years where there were two movies regarding similar or the same plots were released. Outside of the fact that an individual is no longer alive or hasn't been alive yet, that it, it's taking place in one location and that there is a recreation of some sort. Outside of that, the films are dealing with very separate, very different themes and very different elements. I think it's interesting that Nine Days gets accused of ripping off Coriata, but Coriata has been accused of ripping off Ozu or somebody. And then so on and so on and it's like where do you draw the line like i think everybody takes inspiration from somewhere and everybody in their day is accused of quote-unquote stealing ideas from a different artist that inspired them there's people who claim that you know Coriata's work isn't wholly original either so it's just a little unfair i think overall so the recreations worked better in this case than afterlife yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot. Overall, which one did you think was the better film? They're both good in their own way. That is such a just an answer. We live in a world in which both can exist. I'll give you the answer you're looking for. I think Nine Days is a better experience for me. I'm not saying a better film. I'm saying a better experience. I think there's a distinction. And it's just because Nine Days affected me emotionally and that is something that I appreciate when a movie can do that. I felt like Afterlife, I felt like I was 
there and I was experiencing these things with these characters and it was a good experience, but I don't think that it resonated with me emotionally the way that Nine Days does. Uh, Justin, what are your takeaways? I think what stood out to me with Nine Days, apart from it being an enjoyable experience, an experience that affected me emotionally, it's the editing. I think the editing is very strong. The way the events of the film, you know, the plot and the beat-to-beat events, those things affect the the rhythm of the editing, the shot selection, and then those things are there to create a certain emotion. The editing changes to correspond with a change in the film or a change in a scene or a change in the character. The way montage is used here to do a lot of things all at once, build a world, establish characters, establish all these ideas. I honestly think this is a film that is worth studying for anybody who's interested in film editing or someone who is a film editor. I think the sound design is pretty incredible. You know, we think of first-class sound design existing in the blockbuster world. What gets nominated, I mean, again, I'm talking about awards and, and I don't care about awards, but we think about a film in which there's a lot going on. We have explosions, we have gunfire, we have underwater scenes, we have space scenes, we have all these elements. That's what means, similar to the conversation that most editing equals best editing, you know, most sound design equals best sound design. Here's a film in which it's a simple story. It's sort of low on incident. You know, there's not a lot of big dramatic moments, but I think the editing is really well done. I think the sound design is really well done. And I think these are things that you can kind of study and learn from in making sort of what are considered smaller scale stories, but just using the tools of cinema expertly, in my opinion. This is a film I will revisit. And apart from getting a lot out of the experience, just as a film, I think this is a film that I will kind of take another look at the editing and the sound design as a a learning exercise too. In closing, I would just say, don't be afraid to ignore conventional lighting techniques and just light for mood, emotion, and character. Because I never imagined, you know, coming from another country, and English is not is not like my first language. You know, I never thought I would be able to just write, and, and people just it, it's it's hard to believe that you can write in a you know a whole script, in a, you know, another language. It, it, and I it, it feel like I'm, a, I'm more like a writer than a director somehow. I, I direct because it, it's a continuation of my writing. I know that you know if other people direct it, it's gonna be. They, they won't be able to continue the writing. My, my stuff, I think, are weird enough, so only I can, you know, understand how to continue, you know? Like, for example, we don't know what came before us or something like that. We don't know, okay, the big band, but what, what happened before? What's the purpose of it? So I was okay 
when even when people ask me like, oh, but why things are this way? And it was like, do you know the answer? Uh, uh, when you think about our world, we don't. Right. Okay, so it's fine, you know. Uh, so so yeah, and then that's that's what you know uh, creates the the gaps and 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 places we don't of don't know. And then creates like religions, creates like you know uh, theories, and, and people just like start creating stories. And I, you know, I felt like, yeah, I think it's fine, fine to to have those kind of gaps in, in, in my world. Some people are going to be frustrated, and some people are, but uh, but I like not explaining everything. I think that we're going to be cliche and do what everybody does around this time of the year. And we're going to uh, go ahead and enjoy some holiday films. That being said, I guarantee no one else is discussing what we will be discussing. I think we wanted to be holiday themed in some way, but we didn't want to discuss the films everybody else is discussing. We do that occasionally, but we try to also discuss other things. I picked a film that is probably... Honestly, you know, it's probably up there with Bless Their Little Hearts in terms of how many people know about it, how many people have seen it. The film is Charles Pokel's Christmas Again from 2014. The director is Charles Pokel from 2014. I say that because there is at least one other Christmas Again. This is my kind of movie. It's been a while since I've seen it, so we'll obviously discuss if I still feel the same way after watching it. We all know that that stuff can change. This is my type of movie, truly independent, character-driven, small scale, rough around the edges in some ways, and that's the kind of stuff that just gets me excited. So I'm looking forward to revisiting this. Joe, had you ever heard of this film before I even picked it? Have I ever heard of this movie? No. I did watch the trailer after you brought it up as your selection, and I'm curious. I I think that you know there's something about it that visually looks interesting and and appealing. It it does feel like kind of that low budget labor of love type movie. I'm always there for that. So I want to thank everybody for listening to our discussion of Edson Oda's Nine Days. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with someone who would enjoy it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at seambyseampodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson. Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. And join us next time for our discussion of Charles Pokel's Christmas Again. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for?
Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? <laughs> still rolling. You know, oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Great work, everybody. That's a wrap.